Welcome to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Get the inside scoop on how to help your child become successful in and out of school. As parents, we know that your child can sometimes forget to share the notes from their backpack. That's why we've launched this podcast just for you. Welcome to today's episode. I'm Helen Westmoreland. And I'm Lawanda Tony, and we're your co-hosts. Today, we're talking about testing, which can be a polarizing issue. Whether you love them, hate them, or fall somewhere in between, testing is a part of our kids' lives, and it's important that we understand them. Helen, I'm looking forward to today's guest because I know when Caleb's test scores arrive, they're not always easy to make sense of. I know a lot of families have other questions about testing, too. Totally. I think testing is a bit of a mystery for many parents, which is why we are so glad to have an expert with us today to really shine a light on this topic. Today, we're welcoming Dr. Andrew Ho, Charles William Elliott Professor of Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, to the show. Andrew Ho is also a director of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching and has served on the governing boards of the National Council on Measurement and Education and the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Before graduate school, he was a middle school teacher in creative writing in his home state of Hawaii and a high school physics teacher in California. He is also the father of two. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So I have to ask, what made you want to become an expert in testing? (laughs) (laughs) Such a great question. Yeah, whenever you meet a psychometrician, and that's what we call ourselves, psychometricians, I often say that it sounds more like an insult than a job title. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly, it means that I do work in educational and psychological testing and measurement. And we always say that you can always start a conversation with a psychometrician by asking, how did you get into this field? Because no one grows up saying, I'd love to become a psychometrician when I grow up. No one even knows what it means. Some people might, right? Yeah, but I've always been interested in education and I've always been interested in teaching. And my mom was a teacher and my grandmother was a teacher. And I started teaching during the summers when I was in ninth and 10th grade. So I always loved teaching and I was always trying to figure out how to get students more engaged. And in my junior year in my undergrad institution, I studied in Kyoto, Japan. And I went to this high school in Osaka and I immediately realized that everything was about the test. Everything was about the Mm. test. The teachers were talking about tests. The students were talking about tests. I said, wow, what an amazing tool to focus the attention of students and teachers and educational systems. The problem is these tests are bad. (laughs) They're not good. (laughs) So if only I could make them better. If only Ah. I could create a test worth teaching to, then I could improve educational systems. I have since discovered that that is incredibly naive. And yet it is also the hope of so many teachers as they Mm. design their own tests and administer them to their students, of so many education leaders and of so many policymakers. So, Andrew, what is the purpose of standardized testing? Whenever I talk about the fact that I do work in testing, people immediately gravitate to one of many particular uses of Mm. tests. Can you guess what use that is? Is it accountability? So it's actually not. And I find it really interesting. I think different families will talk about different kinds of testing. It's not accountability testing. When I talk to my relatives, it tends to be much more about the SAT 
and the ACT exam. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Yep. But yeah. I love how you immediately went to accountability testing because that is what I would consider a very different purpose of testing. So you can oh. see immediately that's actually the area of testing that I do the most work in. And yet my family immediately jumps to, oh, tell me more about how my kids can do better on the SAT and mm. ACT exams. I'm like, I actually don't study that as much as I do all these mm. other purposes of testing. So I find that also when we have disagreements about testing and controversies about testing. A lot of it stems from the fact that we're talking about different uses and purposes of testing. Mm -hmm. I actually have these four quadrants, and this isn't a visual medium, I understand, but when I present this, I put this on a slide and I say, is it high stakes or low stakes? And that's one dimension. Mm -hmm. High stakes or low stakes? And then I say, is it more for individuals or is it more for groups? Ah. And if you take this two-by-two two diagram, is it high stakes or low stakes for individuals or for groups, you start to see the four different purposes of educational testing emerging. So the first and most widespread use of educational testing is the one we rarely debate. It's what teachers do with their students in the classroom every day. It is mm -hmm. informal and it is what I do with my own students. It's what you've done with yours. It's what parents do with their kids when they're working with them on homework, right? Homework is often graded. That's a kind of assessment. Teachers watching students mm. in classrooms, that's a kind of assessment. Are they engaged? Are they paying attention? And then there are slightly more formal assessments that go on in classrooms all the time at the end of the week often or at midterms or at the end of the semester. We have all sorts of classroom assessments. The vast majority of the amount of testing that happens in the United States is is in this one quadrant that is not often debated or discussed. Mm -hmm. We then can shift in these four quadrants to the high-stakes individual assessments that my relatives ask me about. And these are often mm -hmm. college admissions tests, but they are also tests that we sometimes use for screening people into remedial or accelerated education classes. We can use these tests to diagnose learning disabilities. Those are relatively high-stakes individual tests and assessments, yet a different kind of purpose that demands a different kind of test. And now we move up a level to the level of accountability testing, where actually the individual student test scores don't matter that much. We're more interested in understanding how our schools are doing and how our teachers are doing and how our districts are making progress over time. And that is yet a high stakes but group level assessment where we're trying to figure out how we can encourage our schools and our teachers and our districts and our systems to make progress. And then finally, the last quadrant, which also is, I think, underappreciated and under-discussed, is this low-stakes aggregate-level testing, what I call the monitoring quadrant. What do I mean by monitoring? We just want to know if we're making educational progress. Mm -hmm. We're not going to place high stakes on it. We're not going to withhold your funding. We're not going to increase the salaries of our teachers on the basis of it. We just want to know as a citizenry, as a group of Americans like here in Massachusetts, for example, is Massachusetts making progress? Is the United States making progress? And for that, we have this assessment that you mentioned when you introduced me called the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Mm. That's such a good point. I think for me as a parent and even having worked in education, I wish and feel frustration sometimes that those higher stakes group tests around accountability are more useful to my child, like understanding where my child is individually. I wonder if that's a frequent misunderstanding around testing and what other big misunderstandings do you see in the field? 
It's such a great observation, Helen. I just got my MCAS scores. MCAS is the state test here in Massachusetts. I just got them. It's December. December. Right? Yeah. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> so how totally. could it possibly Your kid take- took that in March, so probably. April. Happening. Yeah. Which is to say, right, you can see how the purposes of the tests drive how we produce results and when we produce results. Because those tests are really not designed to support individual instruction. The states just punt on them. They're like, oh, we'll get them back to you in the fall. This really isn't meant to serve this purpose. What's interesting, you have to keep an eye on it, right? Sometimes they're sold as serving that purpose. Yeah, I totally thought that was their purpose. (laughs) Right? And of course, one of the big misunderstandings about testing that I find my four quadrants diagram helps to clarify is that no single test can serve all purposes well. Mm -hmm. And that actually the only way to cross purposes is to invest a massive amount of money that amounts to duplicating an entire testing program, (laughs) which is to say, yes, it's true that accountability tests oversell and underserve the purpose of informing instruction and providing parents timely information. So for me, my son is in the third grade now. And he goes to a public school. However, he goes to a specialty school. They focus on Montessori learning. So it's definitely a challenge for him testing-wise because that's not the approach of teaching that they have. So I can remember when he took his first test, he was like, why do I have to answer all these questions? Can I come back to it? Can I do it later? Because that's the style of teaching that he had. But they're taking standardized tests, but they don't teach in that format. So it was definitely jarring for him at first. And I'm sure other people have challenges with testing as a way to assess how my child is doing. Yeah, that is a common concern. If you look at what standardized test administration looks like, it does not look like a typical day at school. <laughs> yeah. Right? And especially at a Montessori That's school. That's the rub, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. There has long been a desire to create more what we call authentic assessments. And wouldn't that be great if we could have assessments that sample, that select from what a kid does in mm-hmm. a typical class on a typical day? That turns out to be a very, very good way to do classroom-level assessment, individual low-stakes to provide information to inform instruction and tell parents how they're doing. There's no better assessment, I think, than just opening up. I've got a fifth grader and a second grader. You just open up their notebook at the end of the week and look at what they did for the week. You're like, oh my goodness, this is wonderful. And yes, you need to make progress here and improvement here. And this is also wonderful. That's an incredible assessment. It is not standardized in the sense it's not comparable across different weeks to different kids. You can't aggregate them and average them up to the state level. And there's the rub. So to serve the purpose of monitoring or accountability, we need to have more comparable assessments. And then all of a sudden you have this very unnatural scene in a school where all these kids are standardized. They're comparable because that enables us to actually compare my daughter to the kid sitting next to her to the kid who's taking similar tests in another part of the state. So that is the trade-off. And one would think that we could just sample in an authentic way from classrooms. But what that sacrifices is comparability. And that's what we really mean by standardized. Mm. Standardized has taken on a very 
very negative connotation. But under the hood of standardization is comparability. So if you have a question that requires fair comparison of scores from one kid to another, and we might argue about whether or not that comparison is necessary. But if one wishes to make that comparison, you must have a basis for fair comparison. Right. And that is where standardization comes in. That's such a good point. So how much should parents actually worry about all these different test scores? I think that's a big question on everybody's mind, particularly now we're seeing a number of colleges have waived ACT and SAT for the year, but it still causes a lot of anxiety, worry, frustration for families and their kids, particularly on those high stakes dimensions test, but just generally worry about like, it is time away from instruction or enrichment. What do you advise in terms of how we as a general public think about testing and our worries around it? It's such an important question. And if I could leave this audience with one takeaway, it's please worry less about test scores. (laughs) Please, please worry less about test scores. But I could actually be more specific than that. Please worry less about test scores for your child. Please worry more about test scores for children, Mm. which is to say, let's try to think about how these monitoring assessments that at a high level track educational progress, let's worry about that and closing gaps in inequality and disparities that we see. Let's worry more about the aggregate Mm. and less about our kids' numbers. Now, of course, far be it for me as a parent myself, easier said than done. Don't care so much about your kids, try to care about all kids. But I would say that there are very specific mechanisms, very specific fallacies and errors that we make when we interpret our kids' test scores. I'll use I statements. When I interpret my kids' test scores, and I do this for a living, and I still make what I'd like to think of as the three most common errors that parents make when they interpret their kids' test scores. And the first is that you think the scores are more meaningful than they are. Second, you Mm. think the scores are more precise than they are. Luanda, have you fallen in that bucket yet? Yes. Any of those? I would say two out of the three for sure. (laughs) (laughs) More meaningful than they are, more precise than they are, and more permanent than they are. Those are the fallacies. Those are the inaccurate interpretations that we make of our own kids' test scores. Even when we know better. Even when we know better. It doesn't matter. I study this stuff. I can show you the bell curves (laughs) that show the massive amount of imprecision. And I can show you the growth curves that show you how impermanent these scores are. And I can look at the test questions Mm. and show that they are not the be-all, end-all of education. And yet, we are weak to numbers. Yes, we are weak to numbers. numbers, Terrible. (laughs) So that is one of the reasons why I have found my original statement of purpose for why I went into this field as naive. Because I used to say, well, let's create a test worth teaching to. But it turns out that no test can solve the problem of a parent or a teacher or an admissions officer Mm -hmm. over-interpreting a number in those ways. So Mm -hmm. that, to me, is what I wish I could leave your audience with, is dialing the stress level far back to show through evidence, which we have, how test scores are just a sample. They are not the be-all, end-all, they are imprecise and they are impermanent. I love that, especially the impermanent part. They think that it's just a paper trail that will carry on with your child forever. And what does that really mean? So I'm glad that you're saying it in this way. A lot has changed due to COVID. Mm. So how have remote assessments affected the way school systems are using standardized testing now? 
just the fact that we are testing remotely is in many cases a dramatic shift. I can tell you as a psychometrician on the back end that we've done a lot of work trying to clarify how comparable those scores are. Mm -hmm. Because as we've said, standardization is about comparison. And we want to make sure that those scores that are taken at home, often in extremely different environments, and sometimes quite chaotic environments, and sometimes quite stressful environments, especially at the height of COVID. And our general findings were that you cannot trust those remote test scores, especially at early grades and in low stakes conditions. Now, certainly for SATs and GREs and ACTs and other more formal testing programs, they are doing their utmost to create fair conditions where people cannot, to be quite blunt, cheat. But that is a very costly endeavor. So I just say that there's a lot of work going on to ensure that those scores are in fact comparable. I think the more important question is really about how well we know the debts we need to pay to our schools and societies to recover from COVID. And mm -hmm. the estimates that we have, although those estimates are profound and reveal considerable funding gaps that we need to close, they're also a bit suspect because the population has changed so much and the conditions have changed so much. So this is, again, the enduring measurement challenge is how can mm -hmm. we monitor progress over time? Yeah. Could you talk a little more about that? Because I think one of the big debates that's going on in a lot of states and communities now is like, can we, should we waive that annual high stakes group standardized test? And in part, I think some of that pushback, particularly from parents, does come from feeling like time and effort spent on these things that don't necessarily implicate my child is a little outsized. And here we are in this incredibly difficult situation my kid might not be a good test taker. What is your perspective on that debate? What are some of the changes we should be thinking about as a nation around that end of year annual standardized test that so many schools have taken and put so much effort into because it does drive funding and their grades and their whatever? What I've tried to recommend is that we right-size educational testing, which is mm. to say it has been way too heavy on the accountability side, and we can have a much lighter footprint and still answer the same important questions by shifting to low-stakes aggregate group-level assessment. And that does not need the same amount of time. For example, here in Massachusetts, they simply cut the test in half. Mm. They realize, hey, wait a second, to understand how disparities have increased that we need to address, we actually don't need to test everybody for the same amount of time. We could just take a sample. In the same way that you can conduct a political poll, not by calling every single person in the country, but just by picking a thousand people, so too can we test for less time and potentially fewer people in the future, not swinging the pendulum so far that we can't answer important questions about where and whether to fund our schools, but rather put it right back in the middle to where we have good measures of educational progress that we can act on without the high stakes that distort our teaching and shift our attention away from academic health, social, emotional health, totally. physical health that should be the highest priority. All the educators in the room too, right, who are like themselves having some really challenging experiences during the year. And I can't imagine being a teacher and having to like go into prepping your kids for high stakes tests in just a few months. That sounds 
hard. Certainly <laughs> teacher level evaluation based solely on test scores is indefensible. Indefensible mm, in this yeah. time. There's no empirical support for it. And we've been very outspoken in our field about how that would be a misuse of test scores in these conditions. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Andrew, can you talk a little bit more about some of the inequities around testing, even as far as maybe some of the language used in the development of tests and things like that? Yeah, it's one of the most fundamental questions in our field. Does testing expose or exacerbate inequality? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the answer, of course, is both. <laughs> yes, it does expose inequality that we must address as a society, but it also worsens it because of the ways we use testing, because of the purposes we use testing to serve. Mm-hmm. So I've struggled with this balance throughout my career and tried to say, yes, numbers can be used for good, but let's not forget they're currently being used to exacerbate mm-hmm. inequalities. And to your question about the ways that we design tests, to pull the curtain back a bit on what tests actually are, I strongly encourage every parent to what we call RTQ, read the question. So Uh just take some sample questions and read them. And what Massachusetts and many other states, Massachusetts does this particularly well, they release all of their items, all of their test questions, Mm. and you can see all of them and say, what is this measuring really? And that helps, I think, demystify what tests really are, right? And I wish they did more of this on our score reports. So it's not just a number and not just a description of what proficiency Mm -hmm. is, although that's useful. But show me the kind of questions my kid can get right. And show me the kinds of questions my kid might not be getting right, but could be getting right with additional help in the future. Show me brass tacks, like show me a specific example of the kinds of questions they can answer correctly. And then I'll decide whether I'm worried or not. Yeah, (laughs) I love that. And I don't think a lot of parents realize that they may be able to find the sample questions on the test. Where would people go? Yeah, so every testing program has released at least sample items. Mm -hmm. Massachusetts has a very, very rich database of exactly these. I wish they provided them in Mm -hmm. their reports. It would help to demystify, but they're all Googleable. it's suffice to say, at every state testing website. And I'd be happy if people want to find me on Twitter to direct them to the right location. Awesome. I mean, you mentioned the reports and one of our partners here at National PTA is Learning Heroes, who's done some really incredible research on those reports that come six months after your kid's taken a test or something and what parents really think of it. And you mentioned one of the things, which is like improving those reports could be adding sample items. Are there other things you'd encourage parents to do or test providers, quite frankly, to do to make that information a little less confusing and scary for families who receive those reports? It's really hard, and I don't think a score report on its own will suffice. I think that there needs to be more of a human face or a deliverer of a message in the same way that if you get a much more precise and consequential diagnosis from a doctor, that they sit down with you and talk about what these scores mean. Now, these are much blurrier, and you kind of need someone to say that. You need someone to say, look, this is just like a sample on a day, and here are the kinds of questions it measures. It's not the be-all, end-all. If we did it again, it could blur this much. 
could vary this much. It's astounding how much imprecision and impermanence, again, there is in these numbers. The margins of error that you see around the scores in these score reports are underestimating the amount, like if you tested them today, they would be completely different. Again, six months later. (laughs) So it's like this moment in history, this single snapshot. Imagine going through your phone and being like, oh, let's take this random picture from this random day and see if that captures who my kid is. It's just not how we should be interpreting numbers. So I hope we can become stronger to the interpretations from test scores. And I don't think a score report on its own will do that. I think it takes interventions like these, conversations like Mm -hmm. these that parents have with their teachers, with their school leaders, with other parents to say, hey, this is not the be all end all. This is just a single picture from your phone on a single day way back when. Yeah, I think that's also something that we need to share with our kids as well. Great point. Because they get very stressful because of the way that it's presented to them. Make sure you get a good night's rest before testing. Make sure you do this. You should be doing that every day. Yes. Oh, yeah. Right. And I think that builds a lot of anxiety on them and their ability because they want to know, how did I do? What happened? And I think just what you said about taking a beat and really putting it in its context, that one picture, that one snapshot, not the whole year. It doesn't show your collage of pictures. It just gives you that one little frame. So I love how you said that. Now you've given us, Andrew, a lot of good things (laughs) to share with our families. And I know you mentioned one thing you wanted families to walk away with, but do you have another Well, I love what you said about how we overinterpret scores and that it's not just about parents, it's about kids. That's a really important point. And I think as parents, we should remind our children as often as possible, in particular about the impermanent part, that scores are improvable. And again, our weakness to numbers makes us assume that these numbers are somehow immutable, revealing these truths about ourselves that we cannot change. And certainly the interventions we have these days around improvement mindset, growth mindset, where I always tell my students, It's okay to be wrong. If you're wrong, it just means you haven't learned it yet. And to know that saying that is insufficient. Mm -hmm. Repeating Mm -hmm. the mantra doesn't mean you start to believe it. But there's another way to convince folks about the relative imprecision and inconsequentiality of numbers too, which is to remind folks that the best teachers and frankly admissions officers, the people who they believe have power over them and use these numbers to wield power over them, are actually not using numbers the way that most kids and parents think. And what I try to remind parents of is that in college admissions, we have what I like to call the big five. And the big five are number one, test scores, number two, academic record GPA, number three, extracurricular activities, number four, letters, and number five, essays. So that's the portfolio. And test scores are only one of those five and yet take on this dramatically overweighted importance in the minds of kids and parents. And it's interesting, I think, and important to recognize that the other four receive much less attention. So I think reminding ourselves that there are five and each of these five represent massive universes in and of themselves, we have to take a multidimensional perspective on our kids and how we help them learn, help them grow. And that's not what tests are good at. It must be what we are good at (laughs) in our Mm -hmm. use of scores as teachers and as parents and as citizens. Mm -hmm. I have learned so much. I also just want to call out and appreciate that from a 
psychometrician testing expert, you have said care less about tests, (laughs) (laughs) which not too many people say about the fields of study they've chosen. If folks want to learn more, Andrew, about this debate or your work specifically, do you have any social media handles or websites that you'd encourage people to check out? Of course, yeah. I am at Andrew Dean Ho. Dean is my middle name, not my job title. Andrew Dean Ho, (laughs) H-O, at Twitter. Awesome. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. This has been awesome. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Please remember to visit Apple Podcast page and leave a rating and review. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the season so far. And as always, for more resources related to today's episode, check out notesfromthebackpack.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time. Thank you for tuning in to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media at National PTA and online at pta.org forward slash backpack notes.